Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 118, an unusually hardcore Dharma book. This week, we speak with meditation teacher Daniel Ingram about his recently published book, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. Listen in to hear some geeky and hard-hitting Dharma. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Buddhist Geeks, I have a special guest here with me today. His name is Daniel M. Ingram, and he has been on the show... You've been on the show more than anyone, I think, Daniel. I don't know. Uh, a few times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've talked at least three times. We talked about enlightenment and teachers and talked about Buddhist magic. And then we had you and Hokai on to talk about all these other issues. Today, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your book, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book. And before we go into that, I just wanted to say that your book is one of the first really helpful Dharma books that I found. I was really fortunate to stumble across it almost months after I started practicing, just a few months. And I have to say, it's been, at least for the first four or five years of my practice, it was like my Bible, if you will. I went, <laughs> and this was my guide, basically, to figuring out how to practice well, how to actually realize what the Buddha was talking about. And I have to say, thank you so much for writing it, uh, as I've said before. And I just think it's one of the best books out there. So just a little warning. I, I like your book, buddy. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Those are extremely nice compliments. Um, uh, I hardly know what to say, except that it's nice to hear people say things like that. Um, the weirdest thing for me when people say things like that is that there are so many other great, extremely skilled, very knowledgeable teachers out there, a number of whom I trained with. And I just keep wondering why they never wrote anything quite like that when that's the kind of stuff they would teach or talk about and that's the kind of stuff they taught me. And so, you know, it's not like I didn't get this from all kinds of other people. Obviously, the vast majority of the material, except for some of the synthesis and some fine points of the maps, came from other teachers. And so what I'm, I've always wondered why in the world there were not more books out there like that that were really that sort of down-to-earth and hard-hitting because that's the people who trained me were often very down-to-earth and hard-hitting, and somehow they just never quite wrote that way. Yeah, yeah, it's an extremely unique uh, voice. And I wanted to read just this one section from the foreword. Actually, you call it the foreword and warning, so that yes. should give you an idea of the kind well, of book we're talking about here. It's mostly warnings. <laughs> yeah, so quite a bit of warnings and asterisks, but uh, <laughs> you write... The world is brimming with very nice and friendly Dharma books. There are hundreds available on the shelves of any mega bookstore. However, I believe that there's room for a book that sometimes conveys its message in a slightly different voice. It's the unrestrained voice of one from a generation whose radicals wore spikes and combat boots rather than beads and sandals, listened to the sex pistols rather than the moody blues, wouldn't know a beat poet or early 60s Dharma bum from a hole in the ground and thought the hippies were pretty friggin' naive. Not that we don't owe them a lot. It's yeah. also the unrestrained voice of one whose practice has been dedicated to complete and unexcelled mastery of the traditional and hardcore stages of the path rather than some sort of vapid New Age fluff or pop psychological head trip. 
if that ain't you, consider reading something else. Yeah, I think that's all real and accurate and true. <laughs> because that's what the book is. I mean, it really is designed for people who care about the real old states and stages and really doing what the old dead dudes did and more. So, yeah, that's, uh, it was worth warning people about that in the beginning because most of them are, will not be expecting anything like that. Most of them have not been exposed to much like that because the typical Dharma books are very nice and it's not like they don't contain a ton of truth and things that are useful and things that are good, but somehow they're all just too nice and <laughs> for my tastes and none of it resonated with me in the way that I wanted it to and I thought something just needs to cut through the bullshit. So I did my best to just let it out. And it was actually, I must admit, as I say somewhere in the book, it was tremendous fun to write that way and to just write what I felt and thought, regardless of anyone, whether or not anyone would like it or anyone would care or anyone would be happy with it or whether or not I pissed anybody off. It was just tremendous fun to let it out. So it was actually very therapeutic for me in terms of sort of a rant to actually write the thing. Obviously, it somehow turned out to be much more than that, but... Uh, <laughs> It somehow helped my process anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about how you laid this thing out. Because from what I remember, you lay it out in the traditional kind of three trainings, similar to the way that some of the, the commentaries have been laid out, like the Vasudhi Maga and the Vivmuni Maga. So tell me about wh- why you chose that kind of layout. Well, A, I mean, obviously those are the things I came from. I mean, those are the books that I read and read and reread and looked at and poured over, and those were the conceptual frameworks that I came up in. So that's obviously just some conditioning and me following something that was tradition. But obviously, those, those frameworks and layouts have some value and merit, or they wouldn't keep showing up again and again. And I think that distinguishing between the trainings in morality, which I would consider everything from philosophy to one's emotional life to psychology to essentially everything that's not formal meditation, one's right uh, livelihood and, and relationship stuff and all those things and keeping those squarely in the territory of morality or training is really important because the vast majority of people are actually on retreat psychologizing or philosophizing or dealing with their back pain or they're getting older or their you know stuff with their parents or you know whatever it is their childhood traumas and when you go on retreats you know usually it's about 70 percent psychotherapists and psychiatrists and social workers and people in those kinds of fields all continuing to do what they were doing in their rest of their life, which is some sort of psychotherapeutic process or dealing with whatever's been going on. And really distinguishing between that, which is very important, I'm not saying those things aren't really important, and the the things that I found as interesting or more interesting, which were the, the stages of concentration and then the stages of insight And so I thought it was really important to distinguish between those and provide a good foundation for those, for each of them, but to really say that the trainings in concentration really do have a different gold standard for success than the trainings in morality and psychology and philosophy and livelihood and relationships. And the trainings for insight, getting the stages of insight and getting stream entry and then the higher paths or whatever you want to call them and then finishing the thing up and, you know, seeing through the center point. And uh, really attaining the goal really does have a different set of practices and criteria and assumptions and 
gold standards for success and for how one trains in it than the trainings in uh, dealings with one's issues and psychology. And so it really is important to lay those things out and differentiate between them as clearly as possible because most of the problems people run into are because they just are so overwhelmed with their stuff and they sort of filter all the trainings of insight and concentration through their stuff and their Western psychologized model. And so to really lay out, no, those things are different and they're all good and they're all valuable and they all require some attention. But when doing one, realize that it may not do anything for the others. And when doing one, just stick with that area's criteria and techniques and not go mixing them up because most people just end up with some sort of mishmash that doesn't lead to much if they do that. You're using the word gold standards. What what do you see as the gold standards for each of these three areas of training or, or practice? Right. So the you know the gold standards for training and morality are so vast and complicated as to be nearly innumerable. But it would you know be attempting to live a good, kind, sane. I hate to use the word balanced, but <laughs> somehow I'm. Somehow that word comes to mind, even though it has uh, real problems with it. Uh, life, where you're trying to, you know, be a good person and take care of yourself and try to take care of your world and, and you know, be kind to people and say things that are nice and useful and true and make some contribution to the world and the planet and the politics if you want to or, you know, your community or whatever it is. And to stay physically healthy if you can. And those are all the basic standards for training in morality and there are many, many more because it's such a vast area of work. Essentially, everything that's not meditation falls into that category, so it's hard right. to give good, good gold standards for it that don't sound trite. But then distinguishing from that, the gold standards for concentration are radically different and simply have to do with whether or not you can take your mind and focus it on an object or an aspect of reality or just the whole of reality and whether or not you can get into the traditional jhanic attainments or a stable concentration states or shamatha jhanas, whatever you want to call them, and where we can get into stable, focused, progressively wider, progressively more expansive, progressively less rapturous and blissful, and progressively more equanimous, formless, transcendent, temporary states, all of which end, all of which tend to impart no lasting wisdom, though sometimes wisdom can arise out of them, sort of as a byproduct, but it's not the focus and whether or not one can do that reproducibly and more and more deeply and more and more quickly, which is obviously a very radical, different set of criteria and gold standards from the training in morality. And then the training in insight has a completely different set of uh, gold standards from a Vipassana insight point of view, in which one would be able to perceive the three characteristics of suffering impermanence and no self or emptiness, of the sensations that arise, in the field of experience, either in a limited area or in a wider area, and progressively in the whole of space in one's all through one's being, as one gets to the higher stages, and one can move through the stages of insight, being the 16 classic stages of mind and body, cause and effect, three characteristics, rising and passing away, dissolution, fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, reobservation, equanimity, and then the stages where one gets path and stream entry, or then the higher paths. And so, um, moving through the vipassana jhanas, which are vi- you know vibratory, unstable and do write uh, eventually lasting wisdom and changes on the mind, you know, to get the various stages of awakening or enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. And those obviously are a radically uh, different set of criteria from either of the previous two. And so, you know, keeping those straight so that you know 
you could figure out, oh, if I want to do this, this is what I do. Or if I want to do that, that's what I do. That's very empowering rather than the sort of confused mishmash of, oh, let it go and, and just be with things and sort of settle into your truth and, and this is all okay. And, you know, which is sort of, <laughs> I don't mean to be needlessly sarcastic or harsh, but that's a lot of the Dharma you see out there. And I'm not saying that people don't need to be told they're okay and don't need to be told to settle into what's going on because it's all valuable. But it seems really, really sort of kindergarten-y in comparison to what the more hardcore stuff looks. It looks sort of romper room from my point of view, as opposed to, you know, really see the three characteristics of every sensation that arises in your mind in every second until you can do that for the entire full field and you can see space and your entire body arising and vanishing and thus, you know, synchronize that with the sense of strobing attention and get stream entry, which is obviously <laughs> looks uh, very different both in practice and effect and in instruction. Anyway, that's why I you know, think that's important to lay out different gold standards and criteria so people, if those who want to, can step up to the plate and really know how to get something out of the Dharma and really be challenged to push themselves to really perceive things that are true and make a difference in terms of the way their mind uh, processes reality and sees things. You know, so that's the kind of standards that I find interesting, and so that's what I wrote about. And one of the things I wanted to talk to you about has to do with the gold standards related to insight, because this is one of the areas you spend a lot of time talking about. You even have sections on the th- what are called the three characteristics that you mentioned, and then you go ahead later in the book and you have other sections where you're kind of revisiting them again. That's how important they are. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the three characteristics. I'm sure a lot of practitioners have heard about them, but the way you talk about them I find is, is unique, and I'd, I'd be interested in hearing, hearing you say a little bit more about the importance as it relates to the gold standards of insight practice. Yeah, so the three characteristics are probably my favorite topic in the whole world because while all the other things in the book are important, the morality uh, training and the concentration training, the thing I find by far the most exciting is people getting stream entry, which is the first stage of awakening, or first Bodhisattva Bhumi, or pick your favorite Zen name for it out of Satori or Kensho, I don't know, they're, they're vague on the subject of whether or not they're stream entry or Arhatship or whatever. But anyway, pick your favorite goal. One way or another, those are very, very important. If people are meditating, why not go for those? They're doable. You can do them. They do amazing things to the mind and so and make a real difference. So I think that uh, getting people to those is important. And I don't know of anything more profound than the three characteristics for uh, doing that. And so the three characteristics are impermanence, meaning that the sensations of reality that make up our just basic experience arise and vanish completely in a way that is both analog, meaning that they flux during their arising and vanishing, and digital, meaning that they arise completely and vanish completely. And there are gaps, and one can begin to notice, ah, this is my sensate world arising and vanishing. This is the sensations of the breath arising and vanishing. And this happens quickly, but not so quickly that you can't comprehend it, because by definition, it's experience we're talking about. And obviously, experience can't be faster than experience or slower than experience. It's just experience. This is the, ex- the phenomenal world of experience that we're using as our gold standard for insight practices. Whatever sensations arise is the reality of that time. And so it obviously can't be any faster or more transient than it is. One just has to begin to notice that. And so one begins to notice, ah, those are the sensations of the breath. Those are the sensations of thinking. Oh, those are all the little 
syllables and flickers and echoes and mental impressions of things, of my thoughts and of the, all the little flickering, you know, sort of 3D TV snow-like sensations that make up my body. And people go into meditation thinking, oh, I'm going to get really stable concentration and everything will be more clear and more stable. When instead they start looking around and they find that it's a sort of chaotic field of irritating sensations that are all rising and vanishing and very hard to, you know, stay with and very slippery and they're constantly checking out, where's the breath and oh, where's my thoughts and oh, I'm lost in it and oh, it doesn't seem to be very stable. This is annoying to me. I wish it were more stable. And they try to make it more stable and find some reality that's more stable instead of trying to find reality that's more unstable, which is the point of insight practices, (laughs) to find a sensate field that is in fact utterly transient, that space is transient, that our bodies are massive, just teeny little flickering impressions, all of which are followed by little mental echoes. You know, it's important to say, hey, no, that's what you're looking for. That is your truth, and that's obviously what you find, and you just need to keep uh, looking at that more and more finely and then inclusively. Um, So initially, one begins to notice the impermanence as one moves into the stages of insight. You know, this is the little vibrations of the breath or these little flickering at my fingertips or the the nose and mouth of the breath or whatever. And these are all the little parts that make it up. And they start to notice, oh, there are lots of little sensations and there are lots of little vibrations. And these vibrations are fast and I can actually stay with them if I really learn to do this. And then eventually to expand that out to the higher stages of insight, you know, you start getting into the second Vipassana jhana where it's the vibrations are showing themselves, that sort of rising and passing away territory, as I call it, Kundalini territory. And then noticing how in the third Vipassana jhana it gets wider and it's more irritating. It's all around the periphery. These are the stages people have a very hard time with because they think they're going to find something stable in the focus of their attention and the focus of their attention will get more and more clear when the third Vipassana jhana, it's not. And so in the dark night territory after the arising and passing away, one notices, ah, these vibrations are very irritating and they're happening on their own, just one of the characteristics, and they're all over there, and none of them seem to be me, and yet somehow I seem to think I'm still here, and yet all this stuff is transient and irritating and too unstable to be a self. And these things, this one uh, begins to get into the higher stages of insight, you know, fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, reobservation, one begins to notice, ah, in fact, uh, this is a big, massive, <laughs> irritating, not much fun, can't control it, uh, vibratory, flickering stuff, and the three characteristics are actually right, and one confirms this for oneself, and yet one is frustrated by what one finds, and it's hard to accept, and then as one goes deeper into the thing, one begins to become more balanced about this, and one begins to see, ah, the whole wider field of attention is in fact coming and going, arising and vanishing, flickering, fluxing, and one can get it finally into equanimity in the fourth vipassana jhana, and one begins to go, oh, wait, uh, this is all happening on its own. Even subject, uh, what I pe- thought was me, the watcher, the sense of self or awareness is in fact just arising and vanishing and more fluxing, complete, whole, integrated fields of space begin to arise and vanish. And one begins to see formations and one begins to see, oh, uh, these things are just all coming and going and none of this is me. And if one does that well enough and long enough, um, which doesn't necessarily have to be that long, hours or days for some people, or maybe less, they really are able to come to a balanced place with that and allow the whole thing to arise and vanish and flicker and sync up and just do its thing, they can arise at stream entry through one of the three doors which relate to the qualities of impermanence, suffering, and no-self. So I spent a lot of time talking about impermanence, but suffering is also important. Suffering is that sort of tension that's created as we try to uh, section out a part of reality that is us and ignore the transient, as we try to hold on to a center point uh, that seems to be observing all this. And there's an odd tension in the way we have to ignore the transients and ignore the happening on its own that we have to do in order to come up with a sense of self, but actually tuning into that that 
suffering in the sense of a, the duality itself, in the sense of watching, in the sense of separation, tuning into that fundamental tension at the core of that is actually what begins to reveal uh, the truth of things and begins to disentangle the process. And if one is able to see that strange tension well enough, then it can begin to break up and uh, one can begin to move through the stages of insight, just as seeing impermanence. And then no-self is sort of two separate aspects. One is that everything is arising on its own in a natural causal fashion. Anyone who sit down on the cushion has noticed this. These thoughts are coming. I cannot control them. These pains are coming. I cannot control them. The breath is still breathing, whether or not I pay attention to it or not. Things are just happening. Sounds are coming in. All these sensations are arising. They're happening completely on their own. I can't seem to do anything about them. Yes, that's exactly true. And people go into meditation looking for control, and they find a lack of control, and they fight this. But in fact, looking for the loss of control, looking for the things just happening on their own from an insight point of view, when on the cushion, is an incredibly uh, powerful way to see the true nature of things. And also noticing that everything is observed. All sensations arise and seem to be an object, even when one turns attention to the subject, all those sensations suddenly seem to be object. And so everything is just object. Everything is just out there doing its thing on its own. And noticing this again and again leads to more wisdom. And sometimes we have to see this thousands of times over thousands of seconds or many days or some number of weeks or perhaps months, who knows. But doing this well again and again and again all of a sudden can make us understand, oh, that really is the way things are. And when we directly perceive that for ourselves, that's when profound insights arise. So, uh, yeah, that's the three characteristics, and they're extremely important, and they're the foundation of insight practices, and the amount that they are ignored by the vast majority of practitioners is just staggering, and they're sitting there dealing with their stuff, and their thoughts, and their tensions, and their difficulties, and, you know, their issues, and sort of, oh, I'm working through my process, and my stuff, and all that, and, you know, okay, but they're, they're missing second after second of how obviously uh, the three characteristics are presenting themselves. It's just a tragedy. People are not paying more attention to those aspects of insight because they very quickly, you know, on some number of weeks, uh, you know, of retreat can move people through profound stages of understanding directly uh, the truth of their sensate experience and getting to great insight stages and states of awakening. Nice. And I'm guessing that essentially why you wrote this book is to help people realize that for themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point. I want people to be able to do this. And I want people to, and more than that, I want people to be able to do it without screwing their lives up. And so I actually spend a lot of time in the book talking about the dark night and talking about the stages of insight, primarily because sometimes insight practices and even concentration practices can really mess people up. And so I I try to give a, a ton of practical wisdom about not only how to plunge far and fast and really get into profound insight territory relatively quickly, you know, but also how to do that without really toasting one's life because uh, intense openings and some of the insight stages, particularly uh, the third vipassana, jhana, fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, reobservation, can really mess people up and cause them to be, you know, sort of kooky and irritable and renunciate and mess up their relationships and jobs and career paths. And even some of the later stages can cause people to be real arrogant jerks. I've been that way on <laughs> more occasions than I can count, so I understand. <laughs> and the reason I know how to write about screwing up is because I've done it many, many, many times and suddenly realize, wait a second, this is uh, not too good. There must be a better way and there must be some wisdom that helps one uh, not make so many errors and alienate so many people and those kinds of things. So I tried to provide the wisdom and hard uh, one lessons uh, from my adventures and uh, mistakes and the mistakes of many of my excellent and profoundly accomplished Dharma companions that we've all got to witness each other crashing along through the stages of insight. And, and so I, I try to provide tons of information, not only on how to do it, but how to do it in a way that's 
sustainable, if that makes sense, and not destructive. And you know, a lot of people will say, oh, insight practices are all about good things, not about bad things. But really, when you go plunging hard into sort of tearing down your sense of subject-object duality, some of the side effects from that can really suck. And so I try to put a lot of the book about not only how, how people can do this for themselves, but how they can do it in a way that uh, doesn't mess up their ordinary life, because obviously training in morality, which is your relationships and your careers and helping your family and, and helping the community are all very important, and how to do hardcore insight practices without jeopardizing that as much as possible is uh, one of the real messages of my book. And just to mention again, the book's name is Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually yep. hardcore Dharma book. And yep. it's available on Amazon, on eonbooks.com. Yeah, Eon Publications. Although I'd really prefer that people actually order it from their own independent local bookstores. There you <laughs> support, go. Support your independent local bookstores. And yes, you could buy it on Amazon with three clicks or whatever. But please call up your local struggling uh, bookstores. They're incredibly important for the community, incredibly important for writers, and we, we need them. So if you're going to order it from somewhere, order it from them, or if you have to click on Amazon, that's fine. Okay, whatever. They do have their place too, and they're important, but uh, you see what I mean. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.